Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. At the Intermountain Fair Housing Council, we not only believe those words and that justice is just around the bend, we believe that it is up to us to build beloved community. My name is Sarah Jarazek, and you're listening to Around the Bend, a fair housing podcast. This is episode two in a fair housing history mini-series. This series consists of six short episodes, all focused on a different aspect of fair housing history in the United States and in Idaho. Today's topic, patterns of immigration into the United States, particularly of Mexican immigration. When we look back over the last 200 years, what we find is that these patterns are just that, patterns. They are by no means random nor are they usually decided by immigrants themselves. The pace of migration was and continues to be dictated not so much by U.S. immigration law, but by labor requirements. What I mean by this is that every time the U.S. economy or labor market spikes or dips, it's reflected in our treatment of Mexican immigrants. For a decade or so, Mexican people will be adamantly encouraged and enticed even to work in the United States because of a shortage of labor, And then once the situation changes, they are actively and sometimes very violently discouraged or forced out of working, or sometimes from even living in America, so that when we take a look back, what we really see is this ebb and flow of migration from our southernmost border, all at the seemingly ever-changing whim of American industrialism. In the 1880s, we see Mexican labor being sought heavily in order to build railroads first in the southern and eastern U.S. states, and then, though to a lesser extent, in the West, though Western railroad construction was by and large completed by Asian immigrants, particularly from China and Japan. Incidentally, that's something we will come back to a tad later in this series. At the turn of the century, the railroads had for the most part reached the peak of their construction— This time, that trend of enticing labor for Mexico not only waned, but was abruptly reversed. By the start of World War I in 1914, we see it start to change back. That is, as you probably could have guessed, because American men and therefore a large section of the U.S.'s workforce had been sent to fight in a war. What did we do? We looked to Mexico again. When the war ended in 1918, surviving American soldiers returned home, and that Mexican labor we had so desperately sought for years earlier was no longer considered necessary. Now, by this point, that ebb and flow was becoming pretty standard, and while it had always been contentious and definitely violent, the political discourse around it really increased as conversations about isolationism soared in the 1920s and 30s. It's no coincidence that this is the first time we see mounted inspectors authorized by United States Congress at the U.S.-Mexico border, and these were, of course, the predecessors to border control agencies we have today. In 1929, with the onset of the Great Depression, mass unemployment swept America, and any laboring Mexicans, or even Mexicans we considered at risk of possibly taking jobs, were deported. Flash forward a couple of years, and almost immediately after the United States' official entrance into the Second World War, we see Mexican migration to the U.S. pick up again, as industries struggle to continue producing at the rate as before a majority of their workforce once again departed to fight overseas. Now, you've probably heard that women made up a huge part of the war effort at this time, taking over their husbands' jobs and keeping things running. What gets a lot less acknowledged, however, is that thousands of Latino people, and particularly Mexican people, were working alongside them. 
This was partly due to something called the Bracero Program. The Bracero Program was a series of diplomatic accords between Mexico and the United States government, which permitted millions of Mexican men to work legally in the United States on short-term labor contracts. These agreements were supposed to address a national agricultural labor shortage, as well as redressing previous Depression-era deportations that unjustly targeted Mexican-Americans who were actually legal U.S. citizens. Ultimately, this program was just the easiest way for American industry to subsidize a worker shortage with cheap labor. And when the need for it slowed, so did interest in the program as a whole, and it was officially terminated in 1962. Around this same time, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were more than exhausted by this constant back and forth, fed up with trying to assimilate or earn favor with white Americans and existing at the whim of U.S. economics or policy. In the 1960s, we see a new wave of Mexican-Americans embracing their identity, and this time it's bolstered by a layer of protest. With the Chicano movement, Mexican-Americans finally abandoned efforts to blend in and actively embraced their full heritage. By adopting Chicano, activists took on a name that had long been a racial slur and wore it with pride. And instead of only recognizing their Spanish or European background, Chicanos now also celebrated their indigenous and African roots as well. Now, this is all fascinating history, you might be saying, but what does it have to do with fair housing and Idaho fair housing specifically? Well, Mexican, Latinx, and Chicano farm workers and their families continue to be a vital community within the Idaho population. Not only do they literally serve us by providing our food, but they are our neighbors, our children's schoolmates. We stand beside them at the grocery store and sit with them at restaurants. But as a whole, the American mindset and treatment of farm worker communities is as expendable and cheap labor. Historically, we have not treated migrant workers as actual people, but just as a labor force, a commodity. And because of that, they are regularly subjected to housing conditions absolutely rife with fair housing violations. A study by Idaho's advisory committee found that housing is the most pressing problem facing migrant and seasonal farm workers today. Sometimes there's simply no housing available. And sometimes any housing that is available is inaccessible, far from community services or shopping. In some communities, available housing actually jeopardizes the health and safety of migrants and their families because it is in such poor repair. And other times, the cost of housing is just too prohibitive. In 1946, Congress authorized something called the Farmers' Home Administration to provide families with financing tools such as loans and grants aimed at helping them reestablish self-sufficient farming efforts following the Great Depression. In 1961, Congress authorized the FMHA to broaden its bandwidth and finance general water projects and housing for non-farmers in rural municipalities. States have their own more localized versions of the Farmers' Home Administration as well. And in Idaho, one policy of the program is that Farm Labor Housing Authority projects must be within a five-mile radius of the nearest town. Support for this policy comes from the drive to facilitate inclusion of farmworker families and their children in the life of the community, and to make school and medical services more easily accessible than they have been in the past. They contend that removing the isolation farmworkers have often faced within their housing will eliminate much of the stigma previously attached to these living spaces. They also charge that any reluctance to situate projects in or close to town is grounded in a racist desire to segregate farm workers, many of whom are not only Mexican or Latinx, but Chicano. 
It's really important to remember that housing has been used in the past as a tool to stamp out movements for social justice and change. Where you live is so important, it can dictate the quality of all manner of things you have access to. Schools, hospitals, grocery stores, discriminatory housing practices takes all of that away. If you or someone you know has experienced housing discrimination because of their race, gender, or any of the seven protected classes, please reach out to Intermountain Fair Housing Council today. You can find the link to contact us in the description of this episode. The Intermountain Fair Housing Council is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to ensure open and inclusive housing for all persons without regard to race, color, sex, religion, national origin, familial status, sexual orientation, gender identity, source of income, or disability. The work that provided the basis for this presentation was supported by funding under a grant with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The creator is solely responsible for the accuracy of these statements and interpretations contained in this presentation. Such interpretations do not necessarily reflect the views of the federal government.